Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. This is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is November 12, 2016. Tonight we are going to um, present part 16 of the Protocols of Satan. First, I have a few things to say about the election. I, I don't really want to speak about the election again, but I have inquiries and I have issues and I get questions, so I try to answer them all at once, and here we are. Here on the heels of the latest United States presidential election, we return to our presentation of the Protocols of Satan after about a four-week hiatus. Perhaps we may soon know whether this latest election result was granted to provide the world with some temporary relief from the wiles of the devil, or if it is indeed another chapter in the ultimate fulfillment of the protocols. We should seriously doubt that Satan has ceded any control over American politics, and believe instead that the devils are indeed satisfied with the outcome. George Soros had boasted on network television that Hillary Clinton would lose the popular vote and win the electoral, the electoral college. It didn't happen. In fact, the result was precisely the opposite. But how do you know when a Jew is telling the truth? They make war by means of deception, and they feign weakness when they have the advantage. When a Jew moves his lips, he's lying, and wherever you see a rabbi, there has already been a crime. These adages are true, and they are always true because even when a Jew appears to be telling the truth, he is doing it with pretense, and with an ulterior motive that is much more important to him than any concession to fact. Soros may have lied on purpose, so that it looks like the Jews or Soros himself don't have so much power after all, deceiving white people into a state of being placated once again. Donald Trump has said a lot of things which nationalists everywhere love to hear, and the next several months will be an indication of whether or not he really meant any of them and also of how he meant them. His interpretation of his words certainly differ from that of many of his supporters. We have also noted that during the weeks and months preceding the election, that many nationalist-leaning Trump supporters practically refused to process many of the things which Trump had said in his speeches. After the election, when, pro when protests broke out, some of the Donald Trump supporters that we know were even upset that Trump called for unity, understanding that white Americans should have no unity with the types of supposed people who were protesting. However, they shouldn't have been upset. Trump has not betrayed his supporters at all. They just didn't hear his words during the campaign. For example, in the opening moments of his so-called Gettysburg Address speech, given in October, Trump made a reference to the divisions which Abraham Lincoln faced as president and expressed hope that he himself may heal the divisions we are living through right now. Those were his words. Like it or not, Trump is an 
Trump has expressed nationalist tendencies, but he's a geographical nationalist. He's a government nationalist. He's not a white nationalist. He's not a racial nationalist. Like it or not, Trump's call for the healing of divisions in that speech and his call for unity amongst Americans is regardless of race or regardless of any other barriers. His call for the healing of divisions is a call that the healing of divisions amongst the races should somehow occur. That is the real Donald Trump, whom too many people refuse to see. So they will express surprise and betrayal over the months and years to come. But in that aspect, he is not betraying anybody. We do realize that on this past election night, the nation was saved from whatever further treachery Hillary Clinton may have had planned for it. The Clinton crime family needs to be investigated and prosecuted. In fact, if there were any justice in the world, as we tweeted the other day, Hillary Clinton's next concession would be given at her upcoming arraignment in federal court. So we asserted at Christagenia that if Hillary is not indicted for her crimes, then we must know that Donald Trump is somehow complicit in letting her get away with her crimes. There is no way for him to escape soiled hands if she is not indicted. We have been criticized for saying this, but it's the law of God. In Leviticus, it is explained that if a man knows that a crime has occurred and does not testify to the matter, then he is just as guilty as the perpetrator. Trump himself had said countless times during his campaign that Hillary was a criminal and that Hillary should be in prison. He repeatedly called the Clinton Foundation a criminal enterprise. And we all like to hear that because we all know it's true. Perhaps this will be our first indication as to whether he really does have the principles he displayed during the campaign or if he and Hillary are on the same team after all. And if all of the nationalists who supported Trump do not hold him to his promises as vociferously as they supported him, then they deserve nothing more than to be oppressed by beasts and devils. On last week's program here at Christagenia, we had two good friends, Brother Ryan and Sven Longshanks, two good friends and identity Christians with different views of politics. I did not want to get bogged down in a debate over whether Hillary or Trump were better for us, or whether Trump's election promises were good or bad for nationalists. Those things should have never been an issue. So that discussion continued in the Christagenia Forum, where it is probably better off. Rather, I had hoped to discuss possible post-election strategies to help keep nationalists, and especially identity Christians, engaged and on message in spite of who won the election. When Trump takes office, if the memes go away then he will not be held accountable to his promises. Not that he would follow through with them on account of the memes, but people need to be constantly reminded of what is or what is not followed through. 
And if Trump is not held accountable for his promises, what have nationalists done except to help elect another Zionist agent whom they think is better for the world than Hillary? The nationalists that supported Trump must hold him accountable for his promises. Otherwise, they betrayed themselves. Rather, it is in our favor, our favor to continually raise the election issues and illustrate, even exacerbate, the electoral divisions until whites realize that some greater struggle must be fought and that battleground will not be at a ballot box. It is obvious that in spite of all our crimes, millions of whites still voted for Hillary. So we have created what we called the White Stupidity Index, which is a rough measure of how likely whites are in any particular state to vote along with Negroes and other non-whites. Of course, the number of Jews may be an underlying factor in some states, and we could not take an accurate measure of that. I first had the idea to do something like that in 2009, after Obama was elected, and it took eight years and (laughs) several elections to get around to doing it. Some people think I am being hypocritical for creating this white stupidity index while not having participated in the election, not even having voted. But they missed the point, which is only to identify the states where whites are most liable to side with non-whites. When it comes time for action, we can see just where we won't find many allies. Our original motivation for making this index was simply to poke fun at whites who voted for Hillary. Some of the results are surprising. For example, California has a population where only 40% of the people identify as white. Yet Trump still managed to get 35% of the vote. So our white stupidity rating for California is a very low 5%. Of course, the real number must be at least a little higher than that, since it is certain that at least some non-whites must have voted for Trump somewhere. But the index only claims to be a simple guideline and not a scientific measurement. But if there is not a change in demographic trends over the next few decades, California today reflects the future of the entire nation, where whites resorting to the ballot box, do not stand a chance in hell of winning. Now, for doing these things, some friends and listeners who did engage in the political process imagine that I am being hypocritical, since I do not engage in the process. In fact, wanting to see Hillary defeated, I chose to not say very much at all in the months before the election because I had nothing positive to say. But I am certainly not being hypocritical. Whether Clinton had won the election, or since Trump has won it, I have only one objective, to find a way to exploit the results and devise a message which would help to bring more of our fellow whites to the level of understanding which we have at Christagenia. That in the end there is no political solution to our woes. That is the only real reason why why I would ever want to discuss contemporary politics. So while I don't participate in the voting, I certainly 
have a better mind by attempting to exploit the results. And that is more contributory towards our cause. The bottom line is this. While I would never profess to know everything, or even many things, I would profess to know exactly what the Bible says about why our white race is in this current dilemma which it faces, and how we are going to get out of this dilemma. And that is what I try to do my best to expound upon every chance I get. I also take myself and my beliefs seriously, even if all of my listeners do not. We do not know when the time of our deliverance is going to come. So the most that I can hope for is to plant seeds of awareness as to the causes and solutions for the challenges which our race faces, and hope that some of those seeds bear fruit in the future. But if I betray my own profession by engaging in worldly political endeavors, all of which are under the full control of our enemies, I will forever discredit myself. So knowing that there is no political solution, if I were to take part in the political process, I would be contradicting everything that I teach, and then I would be a hypocrite. My participation would discredit everything I have said in works like Christreich and in a series on the Protocols of Satan. Men can despise me for that, but I will certainly not despise myself. My listeners can take part in the futile endeavor of day-to-day politics, and that is their own decision. It's not just whether or not you vote, it's why you vote that really matters. I will not despise them if they think that something good may come of it. If those who listen to our message chose to join me on their own volition, then I would commend them, but I will not dictate to them. So for my part, I must stay focused on the bigger picture and the absolute principle that only Christ is king. America was supposed to be a white Christian nation. Citizenship and office holding exclusively reserved to white Christians. And under those circumstances, choosing a leader may be an entirely different experience, but something which we in our lifetimes have never experienced. Many people think that America is still a Christian nation, rather than a beastly oligarchy of Jewish money operating under a pretense. Therefore, I do not actively condemn anyone for voting or even running for office, but I myself cannot take part in the process. We can either stand on our principles before God or seek to please men, as it says in the Proverbs in chapter 17. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. We would rather stand on our principles. If Yahweh wanted Donald Trump to win this election, even the niggers would have voted for him, and at least some of them did. In some of our recent post-election pondering at Christagenia, we also wrote that if there are no massive post-election Negro chimp-outs in the cities of America, if Black Lives Matter does not riot and tear up all of their own neighborhoods, then we can be rather certain of one thing, that all along, 
George Soros and Black Lives Matter were in direct collaboration with the Obama administration to purposely undermine the rule of law in America. Now we will qualify this statement. We said this not because there is a chance that Soros is not purposely undermining the rule of law in America. He most certainly has, through his funding of hoodlums and degenerates, or I should call them deplorables, as a means of destabilizing certain elements of society for his own Marxist revolutionary purposes. Rather, we said it because the Obama administration has done nothing to stop him from funding these purposely disruptive and willfully violent groups. He will test Trump, and I'm sure he will test him, not long after January 21st. Now the thing, now things are getting more interesting. As the Black Lives Matter thugs have been organized into a legal foundation, funded with as much as $33 million from George Soros, and now pledges now has pledges of over $100 million from the Ford Foundation, from an outfit named Borealis Philanthropy, probably some Jew, and other Marxist groups. This was recently reported in the Washington Times. This represents the next step in the globalist dialectic to legitimize the destruction of the rule of law in America. Of course, this is all a mask for the further advancement of a more sinister agenda. For example, the Times article quoted an announcement by Borealis Philanthropy, which said the Black Lives Matter Foundation provides grants, movement-building resources, and technical assistance to organizations working to advance the leadership and vision of young, black, queer, feminist, and immigrant leaders. They put them all, all the deplorables, in one basket who are shaping and leading a national conversation about criminalization, which means that they're anti-law, policing and race in America, which means that niggers should be allowed to break the law. We hope to elaborate on our opinion of these developments in future segments of this series on the protocols. So on a very evening of the election, Anti-Trump riots had suddenly broke out in places where Hillary Clinton had the most support. The New York Times reported that the first protests took place late Tuesday, November 8th, in cities on the West Coast. The polls hadn't even cooled off yet. One internet meme we saw in regard to these riots was a message reminding the protesters that they represent the anti-gun side. But we know that they are also hypocrites, because black thugs and Jewish progressives are all generally well-armed. But the very fact that these supposedly pro-democracy demonstrators are contesting a democratic outcome also exposes them as hypocrites. The truth is that all progressives are hypocrites, and the progressive agenda is never wound back because whites simply do not understand its true nature. We had hoped for massive chimp-outs, but these current protests are not yet what we hope to see.
that these protests were apparently organized and ready to go in advance of the election results is evident in the way that many of the placards carried by the protesters were professionally printed, and tour buses were found outside of protest sites as soon as they began, indicating plans that they had that many that that many of the protesters had been bussed in from outside of the protest areas. Rather, what we hope to see in protests are repeats of the Baltimore or Ferguson riots, which were strictly along racial lines. So long as many of the current protesters appear to be white, most whites in America will not realize the true nature of the protesters because the mainstream media will ignore the violent acts which have been committed against whites, whether or not they were actually Trump supporters. So we will hold out in hope of seeing another Baltimore or Ferguson soon. Because the only thing that seems to awaken most whites is a good beating by these animals that the globalist Jews Jews have deceived the world into thinking of as people. This is one thing that the Trump candidacy has done for us. Early in his campaign, he did adopt some of the alt-right rhetoric, which means he was listening. And he still probably does listen, although he seems to have backed off a few things. To a great extent, he has pulled the mask off the media. He has exposed a lot of the treachery of progressive Jews and put them out into the open for the public to see and he has greatly exacerbated the political divisions between the races. He called out the media specifically as being biased, exposed them openly, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. We can only hope that these things continue to manifest themselves before the public yawns and the roaches crawl back under the baseboard to hide for another few years. So we had hoped for massive chimp-outs, but we must also ask this. Do the demons who are calling the shots behind the scenes also hope for that same thing? So that they may once again manipulate whites into a situation which allows them to accomplish some other nefarious objective. Remember the Patriot Act. The demonstrations continue, but we won't speculate on an outcome. And another Patriot Act, Patriot Act type of bill would, of course, succeed more under a Donald Trump than it would under a Hillary Clinton with a Republican Congress. The last time we had a fully Republican President, Senate, and Congress, we ended up with the Patriot Act. So in the meantime, as for our purpose here at Christagenia, we need to maintain a message that confronts both white nationalists as well as politically minded identity Christians and forces them to remember this moment of perceived victory in the months and years to come. Because we're going to have to learn the hard way that there's no political solution. The defeat of Hillary Clinton is only a temporary relief because yet another political hope will eventually fail to deliver them. There is no political solution to our woes, yet it appears that we will have to learn that lesson the hard way once again. How many times must we go through this before so-called awakened whites really become awakened? 
We just went through the same process not 40 years ago. I remember it well. I was a mainstream conservatard. Yeah, I'll say conservatard. But I was still quite conservative and, and quite racially aware. Those of us who remember the Reagan campaign will also remember the mainstream media bias against the moral majority, the white Christian patriot groups, the citizens' militias, identity Christians and others who pinned much of their hopes for the future of America on a Reagan victory. In the end, nothing good came of it. The Reagan revolution was a globalist trap, and we all got caught up in it. Yet we continue in the same cycle of hope and despair to this very day. And this is the point we have to make here. If we can clearly see, and if we fully understand that the protocols of the learned elders of Zion have indeed been fulfilled in history, and then, if we see a political candidate who, regardless of what he says, is surrounded by Jews, and if we understand that the globalist Jewish plutocrats still maintain a full economic control over the entire world, and then if we understand that their own stated method of rule expressly includes lying and hypocrisy, how can we imagine that these precepts of the protocols suddenly have no effect simply because one politician says some things that our kindred people like to hear? Do we not imagine that they know how to manipulate the map masses purposely by saying some things which they like to hear? Is this not an effective way to prevent counter-revolution when they feel that they have a need to make such a prevention? Or is it not a method by which they can advance some agenda, some Patriot Act, by appealing to the people who are the intended victims of that agenda, like they did back in 2001? This is what they did with Ronald Reagan. This is what they did with George Bush. Ronald Reagan, through, Ron, through Ronald Reagan, they popularize globalism in the name of patriotism, when the two ideas are absolutely opposed to one another, but the people still bought it, hook, line, and sinker. So in the end, the masses will become drunk on the temporary elixir, but Satan will still have his way. The protocols are real. The globalist Jews still have control over every aspect of our economic life. And therefore, we cannot imagine that any politician is free of their control. Donald Trump may have a billion dollars in his piggy bank, but every one of those dollars was printed by a Jew. Until some politician changes that predicament, then all politicians are and will remain in collusion with Satan. On this note, we shall continue our discussion of the first of the so-called protocols of the learned elders of Zion, as they are found in the book The Protocols and World Revolution, attributed to Boris Brassall, and published in Boston in 1920 by Maynard Small and Company. In our last discussion of Protocol Number 1, we saw the authors boast that they would resort to spreading vice among the people, 
so as to distract them as slowly as they slowly came to subjugate them to the rule of gold. Maybe they'll elect a president whose wife is an ex-porn star. I'm only half kidding. <laughs> or a president whose mother was an ex-porn star. Wow. The joke's on us. We must note that these protocols were not published until the early years of the 20th century. However, the Jews of Europe had already been pandering to immorality for many decades before their publication. And while alcoholic beverages had always been available, with the rise of humanism their abuse seems to have become fashionable. The Jews who wrote these protocols also boasted of the promotion of sexual promiscuity through the study of the classics, which we saw also caused the rise of neo-paganism among the scholars of Europe during the decades leading up to the Reformation. All of this was discussed here during our earlier presentations of the early life of Martin Luther, and we could refer to the series at Christogenia entitled Martin Luther in Life and Death. The Jews boasted that they spread these vices amongst the bourgeois through the offices of tutors and governesses and the clerical positions which they had so often acquired in the estates of the wealthy. Then the Jews boasted that they would even set their own women out to corrupt the people by sexual means, knowing that the Christian women of the Goyim would follow their example. So the Jews take credit for having planned the spread of vice amongst the noble classes of Europe. But in the Communist Manifesto, the Jews pretend to despise European ideals of family and marriage as being immoral, when the Jews, on the other hand, in the Protocols of Zion, take credit for making them immoral. Here is what it says concerning marriage in the Communist Manifesto. Bourgeois marriage, I'm citing the copy of the Communist Manifesto found at the Mein Kampf project at Christiania. Bourgeois marriage is in reality a system of wives in common, and thus, at the most, what the communists might possibly be reproached with is what they desire to introduce in substitution for a hypocritically concealed in other words, the Jews that wrote the Communist Manifesto are accusing the white nobility of wife swapping, of holding their wives in common, and they're talking that they're they're making this false accusation. Uh, it may have been true among some of them. We'll never know. It's a false accusation because there are no witnesses. They're making this false accusation in order to slander the institution of marriage as a whole. And they're saying that they're going to substitute this hypocritically concealed idea of wives in common. In substitution, the communists desire to introduce, in substitution for a hypocritically concealed and openly legalized community of women, for the rest, it is self-evident that the abolition of the present system of production must bring with it the abolition of the community of women springing from that system, i.e. of prostitution both public and private. So the Jews call marriage, the system of marriage in Europe, prostitution, public and private. <laughs> 
This is what they thought of the Christian society that they themselves sought to corrupt. So the Jews who wrote the Communist Manifesto and sought to remedy it by putting a system of open whoredom in, in its, uh, I'm sorry, so the Jews that wrote the manifesto despised the institution of marriage, made patently false accusations that it had an immoral character, and sought to remedy it by putting a system of open whoredom in place. That system was later called women's liberation and feminism. This is exactly the system that we have throughout the West today. So we can see the Communist Manifesto has been fulfilled in this respect, and so have the protocols. And I'm sorry for not wearing my glasses this evening. I don't even know where they are. That the Jews would encourage their own women to immorality so that they in turn get Christian women to follow along is a pattern which we are able to observe throughout history and under this very day. And I'm going to give two older examples when the entertainment industry was quite young. For example, Feta Barra. Feta Barra was the first so-called Hollywood sex symbol who was popularly called the Vamp. She was born in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1885 to a Polish Jew named Bernard Goodman. But even before her, there was a Dutch Jewish actress named Sarah Bernhardt who had become famous as an actress in France in the middle, of, in, in the middle century of the 19th century, in, in the middle of decades, I'm sorry, of the 19th century. And Sarah Bernhardt earned her fame in nudity, and her first career was as a prostitute. While other American and European actresses had done nude scenes for early films, Jews had blazed the trail. In response to nudity and immorality in the early entertainment industry in America, strict censorship laws were put into place, and films were screened before they were shown publicly. There were few famous Jewish actresses during this period. However, after decades of agitation, once the laws were lifted beginning in the 1950s, the screens again became filled with sexually corrupt Jewesses, setting new limits on what actresses had to do in order to gain renown. Perhaps we shall find an appropriate place to discuss that later in these presentations. After the boasts concerning pandering to immorality, Protocol number one took an abrupt turn and began boasting about how power would be exercised in hypocrisy. Here we shall review the last paragraphs which we had discussed at length when presenting our last segment, which was part 15 of this discussion of the protocols nearly a month ago. And from protocol number one, our power, our motto, I'm sorry, I can't read tonight, Never mind talk. Our motto is power and hypocrisy. Only power can conquer in politics, especially if it is concealed in talents which are necessary to statesmen. Violence must be the principle. Hypocrisy and cunning, the rule of those governments which do not wish to lay down their crowns at the feet of the agents of some new power. And in this context... 
we must consider the wars of Europe, beginning with the time of Napoleon, where the Jews had achieved their emancipation. However, even before that, the Jews, and especially Jewish usurers, operated behind the scenes to manipulate nations into war for their own gain. So Jews were responsible for the Anglo-Civil War and related Stuart feuds which precipitated the establishment of the Bank of England, all the while taking advantage of religious differences among Christians. Jews exploited the Reformation in that same manner, weakening first the papacy and then the nobility, while always managing to affect propaganda which turned the public in their own favor. The wars of the 19th century were inspired by commerce by the Jewish bankers. The First World War was ultimately about commerce, as Germany sought to compete with Britain in world trade. So they were also Jewish wars. But in the same context... We must consider the latest election riots, the Black Lives Matter riots, and all of the similar events we have seen over the last 180 years in America, beginning with the abolitionist movement. Jews have instigated movement after movement after movement. But all of these are no comparison to the, which, to the way in which liberalism prevailed in the wars of Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries. And Americans have not yet experienced how bad things will get if and when they finally endeavor to impose world Jewish supremacism, which ultimately means the destruction of the white race. The Jews always use their control of finance to affect their political aspirations, and they do that same thing to this very day. And every Christian ruler who rose up to challenge Jewish financial control has been destroyed by other Christian rulers who had conceded financial control to the Jews. But in a democracy, as long as Satan is printing the money, he will never be voted out of office. We're going to continue reading with, from protocol number one, material that we also discussed last month. We only felt we needed a refresher. And to put it in perspective of some of today's events, this evil is the sole means of attaining the goal of good. For this reason, we must not hesitate at bribery, fraud, and treason, when these can help us to reach our end. In politics, it is necessary to seize the property of others without hesitation, if in doing so we attain submission and power. Our government, following the line of peaceful conquest, has the right to substitute for the horrors of war less noticeable and more efficient executions, like Black Lives Matter, these being necessary to keep up terror, which induces blind submission. A just but inexorable strictness is the greatest factor of governmental power. And we could refer back to the terror of 9-11 and the Patriot Act once again. Fits this model perfectly. We must follow a program of violence and hypocrisy, not only for the sake of profit, but also as a duty and for the sake of victory. A doctrine based on calculation is as potent as the means employed by it. 
That is why not only by these very means, but by the severity of our doctrines, we shall triumph and shall enslave all governments under our super-government. Hypocrisy is people protesting the process of democracy after voting in an election which does not go their way. Violence accompanies those protests, but only the most general acts are reported by the media, and nothing which would reveal the true anti-white and anti-Christian nature of the protests. This is the evil which Jews commit to affect circumstances, which they may consider good, as they say here, but which are actually all the more evil. But this is only the... the I'm sorry... This is only the natural way in which the enemies of Christendom operate. We should expect them, we should expect them to behave in this manner. Because they're Jews. Because they're Negroes. But most whites don't understand that Jews and Negroes are beasts of a different sort. Whites seem to be docile and pacified by the pretense of democracy even when things do not go as they hope or expect. But the Jews have had financial control of the United States since 1913 and have always supported both major political parties actively. And that's also a process which virtually prevents the rise of a third party, the rise of any alternatives. When white militias began asserting themselves in the 1980s, something which is arguably a constitutional right the government immediately began infiltrating them and, and neutralizing their influence. The media was also in collusion, making public opinion against them. So we know the names of many white men who were allegedly criminals for their political persuasion, even where their supposed crimes were relatively insignificant. On the other hand, the progressives of other races who have committed crimes of violence against whites, as well as the broader society, under the guise of their own political objectives, are legitimized now and given hundreds of millions of dollars by liberal foundations. We hope that Donald Trump is the last white man elected, because all the sooner it may be when whites realize that their liberalism and their participation in such a democracy has invited their own destruction. Here we will desist from commenting further on the material from the protocols, which we had already discussed, and finally commence with protocol number one from where we had left off in our last segment. Even in olden times, we shouted among the people the words, liberty, equality, and fraternity. These words have been repeated so many times by unconscious parrots, which, flocking from all sides to debate, have ruined the prosperity of the world and true individual freedom. Formerly so well protected from the pressure of the mob, meaning the people of Europe, the would-be clever and intelligent goys did not discern the symbolism of the uttered words did not notice the contradiction in the meaning and the connection between them, did not notice that there is no equality in nature, that there can be no liberty since nature herself has established inequality of mind, character, and ability, as well as subjection to her laws. And I don't think there's any 
paragraph in the protocols that I agree with more than this one. This motto, liberty, equality, and fraternity, had been operating in the minds of the people of Christendom for well over a hundred years before the protocols were published. But even then, the impact of these words is prodigious, and the meaning of this statement in the protocols all that much more ominous. That is because just as much damage and more has been caused to Christian society by these false precepts over the past 120 years since the protocols were published than in the 120 years previous, which would bring us back close to the time of the French Revolution when the motto was first popularized. This phrase is also employed as a motto by the Masonic Lodges of France, which were most responsible for the French Revolution. It was popular by that time, and ultimately it became the official motto of France in the Third Republic. Masonry and Judaism have assured its status as an accepted formula throughout the entire world, and its precepts its false precepts, have been so ingrained into Western society that they cannot even be questioned publicly without causing offense. But here in the protocols, the Jews themselves have explained that as precepts the words are false and have only been a ploy by which Jews have been able to undermine Christian society. Originally, the words were used to incite class warfare and the overthrow of the French nobility. When that was successful, and when the same ideals became inherent to the American Revolution for similar reasons, from that time on they have been used as a weapon against society itself. The abolitionist movement used them to gain freedom, and later citizenship for Negroes in America. Then it was the suffrage movement and so-called women's liberation, then it was the Equal Rights Amendment, civil rights, gay rights, marriage rights, transgender rights. The next we may expect to hear of is pedophile rights, child sex rights, animal sex rights, animal marriage rights, ad nauseum. It's going to happen. There's no end to it. In the humanist world, there is no end to the perception of rights, and every perceived right destroys the liberty of another to make a moral choice according to his own conscience. Therefore, people lose their businesses and livelihoods for refusing to cater to another's so-called rights. So the protocols have once again proven that the Jews have purposely engineered the quagmire that we find all of Christendom in today. Ostensibly, their goal is to recreate the world into an image which they prefer, so that it resembles Sodom and Gomorrah on a global scale. The Jews are also correct that the Christian men of the West did not perceive the evil which lay behind the noble-sounding precepts. As the scripture says, all men must be subject to some higher authority. And forsaking the authority of God, men have found themselves once again subject to devils. The rule of law is no longer the rule of God's law, but now men are enslaved to bureaucratic regulation which is the imposition of global capitalism, tools of the devil. The acceptance of egalitarianism has lowered man to the level of beast, and the Jew is the zookeeper. We wrote about this motto at length in our book, Christreich, which we published 
which we published over five years ago. While we cannot lay the groundwork for understanding here in this short space, we believe that we have laid it in our book. In essence, Revelation chapters 16 and 17 are a prophecy of this very age of liberalism, which began in the emancipation of the Jew in the early 19th century, which in turn heralded the age of democracy. Although the predicament had come a bit sooner to the British, and paved the way for the very rule of gold that the Jews boast about in the Protocols, which is the eighth beast of the Revelation, the global banking system controlled by the Jews today, Revelation chapter 17, verse 11. This was the same power that gave its strength to all of the great empires of the ancient world, and which is backed by the dragon, which is a euphemism for the Jews. It is always operated in the shadows, having propped up kings and emperors to play the front men for its nefarious operations. When Christendom rejected usury, the dragon spent a thousand years in the pit, when Christendom began to find usury acceptable, the dragon came out of the pit and was able to once again come to rule the world openly, not in the shadows. This system that it built is called Mystery Babylon in the Bible, and its fall is found in Revelation chapter 18, where it is depicted as an economic system of global trade. We await the fulfillment of its fall today. And the Jews do rule the world openly, in the central banks, in the corporations, and in all of those United Nations economic institutions. With that general understanding, and in the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England. With that general understanding, here is what we wrote in Christreich for Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. And I saw from out of the mouth of the dragon, and from out of the mouth of the beast, and from out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, that's the churches, the government, and the Jews, the dragon of the Jews, the beast out of the, the governments of humanism and the false prophet is the modern denominational sects. And Yahweh God does have a sense of humor. Frogs have no prior allegorical use in scripture. They are one of the plagues in Egypt. However, it is certain that the reference to frogs in the book of Exodus must be taken literally, or at least I would. However, one clue to this use of the word here cannot be overlooked. While it is not an intention here to continually insult the French people, they deserve it, and they were as much the victims of circumstance in the French Revolution as were the Germans, the English and the Americans in the torments to follow, the use of the term frog to describe a Frenchman has been extant throughout the English-speaking world for over 200 years. This may be an indication as to the nature of the unclean spirits which emanate from the mouth of the false prophet, which are like frogs and the beast and the dragon. Since writing this, with the help of our friends in the Christogenia Forum, we have learned that there is a stronger connection of the French to these frogs than we ever suspected. Evidently, the original standard of Clovis, the king of France from 41 to 511 AD, 
consisted of three black frogs. Clovis is the founder of the French monarchy, which lasted all the way to the 1800s. When Clovis ascended to the throne, he converted to Catholicism and united France under one single rule. During this time, he changed the symbol of his rule from three black frogs to the, flame, to the famous fleur-de-lis, which resembled the three frogs enough that apparently the English confused the new fleur-de-lis for, for frogs. I imagine that a fleur-de-lis does sort of resemble a single frog when you look at the shape. Clovis established his capital in Paris, which was known to be surrounded by vast swampy areas full of frogs. It seems that it was the French themselves, not the English, who first referred to the French as frogs. During the French Revolution in the 1790s at Versailles, a common expression was, What will the frogs say? And the reference to frogs there was a reference to the people of Paris. And we thank Ezra Pound and the Christoginia Forum for that. So continuing with what we had written in Christreich, understanding the connection of these three unclean spirits like frogs to the French, a lot of argument, rational or emotional, can be made concerning which isms or which philosophies these three unclean frogs represent these three unclean spirits which are like frogs. However, all the philosophies promoted and forced into our Christian society by our enemies can be summarized in and have been cloaked by the supposed ideals of the French Revolution found in the slogan Liberty, Equality, and Fraternity, which is still the national motto of France today. Through these ideals have gone out all of the Jewish ideas into the world. The ideas of liberty and freedom and equality and brotherhood, which are contrary to the covenant relationship which Christians have with their God. And of course, that means that they're contrary to the interests of our white race. Christians are not supposed to be free. They are supposed to be servants of Christ and keep his commandments. Christians do not have equality. Wives and children are supposed to be subject to their husbands and fathers, and each of us has an unequal portion in the diverse gifts of God. Christians are supposed to have brotherhood only with those of their kin who are Christians, and are to have no community or fellowship whatsoever with non-Christians. The Jewish ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity are ideals which led to the decline of Christian society into the cesspool of human licentiousness. All of the cries for diversity, racial equality, sexual liberation, and every other philosophy detrimental to sound Christian society which has been made these past 200 years have been based upon these Jewish ideals and Jews have been their chief instigators and promoters. And then to continue by quoting Revelation chapter 16 verses 14 through 16. For they, the unclean spirits which are like frogs, for they are the spirits of demons making signs, which go out to the kings of the whole inhabited earth to gather them to battle, 
to the battle of that great day of Yahweh the Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he, alert and keeping his garments, that he would not walk naked, and they would not see his shame. And he gathered them into the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. And Ar is a mountain, and Megiddo means place of crowds. So Armageddon means the mountain of the place of crowds. The events described here, or the height of the place of crowds, perhaps. The events described here can be paralleled to the events described in Ezekiel chapter 38, and to the events described in Revelation chapter 20. All of the alien nations of the world are gathered to battle against the people of God. While an actual military invasion cannot be precluded, this situation has been transpiring for at least 50 years now, since the 1960s, when Christian nations had begun to be overrun with massive non-European immigration by all of the world's other races. This situation is described as culminating in Revelation chapter 19, and we discussed that at great length in the appropriate chapter of our book. It is based upon the ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity that the immigrant floods have been ushered into every Western nation. Here, at the place of crowds, these three unclean spirits would cause the camp of the saints to be surrounded by the enemies of God. So don't tell me that these two things don't correlate. They correlate perfectly. It is based on the ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity that the immigrant floods have been ushered into every Western nation. It is not a coincidence that the final Christian battle is to be fought in the place of crowds and the camp of the saints, who are the white Christian people of the world. And it's being overrun with alien crowds in the name of these false precepts. The Jews have their plan for our destruction, but God revealed to us his own plan for his ultimate victory over the devil and for our encouragement and comfort in these trying times. In the end, Satan shall not prevail. It is interesting that elements of the so-called alt-right movement have chosen a frog for their symbol. Inferences can be drawn for good or for bad, but I could not resist mentioning it here. It's my opinion, and I believe that I'm right, that most of the people in the alt-right use that symbol of the frog simply because it pisses off the Jews. In any event, hearing this, they should hopefully be interested in what we have to say. Continuing with the protocols where they continue explaining the stated effect of the motto of liberty, equality, and fraternity among the people. They go on to say, and I quote, They do not reason that the power of the mob is blind, that the upstarts selected for government are just as blind in politics as is the mob itself, whereas the initiated man, even though a fool, is capable of ruling while the uninitiated, although a genius, will understand nothing of politics, all this has been overlooked by the goys. 
Meanwhile, dynastic government has been based upon this, that the father passed to his son the knowledge of the course of political evolution, so that nobody except the members of the dynasty could possess this knowledge, and no one could disclose the secrets to the governed people. In the course of time, the meaning of the dynastic transmission of the true understanding of politics has been lost, thus contributing to the success of our cause. As we had explained earlier in this presentation of Protocol Number 1, throughout history the men of the noble and ruling families were educated from childhood to be rulers. Just as in any traditional medieval family, the father groomed his eldest son to take his place in the family occupation of whatever estate it was that the family had held. So princes acquired all of the information they would need to be good rulers through their fathers and through the classical education which they would receive from tutors, for better or worse. But democratically elected politicians from among the people have no such experience in government and are generally not educated for governance. Today, yeah, they have colleges that educate people in government, but those colleges really only indoctrinate people in the Jewish form of government or in government which is amenable to the Jews, let's put it that way. And as the protocols assert, even a man who is a genius can only tackle with difficulty the sudden acquisition of a task for which he was never trained. For that reason, in the formative years of the modern democracies especially, many serious mistakes were made. For instance, the American founders wrote a constitution by which a group of like-minded men may find common grounds for cooperation, but that same document did not defend the government it created from the devils who crept in later in order to subvert that government, using the very ideals which the document had espoused in order to do so. They did not even manage to hold on to the meaning of the word posterity for more than a couple of generations, and uneducated voters are every bit as dangerous as undereducated politicians. Continuing with protocol number one, in all parts of the word, the world, the words liberty, equality, and fraternity have brought whole legions into our ranks through blind agents, through our blind agents, carrying our banners with delight. And how many times have we seen good or, or what were perceptibly good white people joining with the Jews against their own nation, joining with the Jews against their own establishment? We see it over and over and over again. We see it today in the streets of New York, Portland. How about the white people that participate in Black Lives Matter demonstrations in Portland, Maine, where there aren't 10 niggers for 10 square miles? What's going on in San Francisco? Lots of white people are demonstrating against the Trump election, demonstrating against the democracy while at the same time, out of the other mouth, side of their mouth, they would claim to be in support of democracy. So, these protocols are right on the money, and this protocol it is the perfect explanation of what's going on in the world around us right now. Meanwhile, continuing with the 
Jews who wrote the protocols. Meanwhile, these words were worms which ruined the prosperity of the Goys, everywhere destroying peace, quiet, and solidarity, undermining all the foundations of their states. You will see subsequently that this aided our triumph. For it also gave us, among other things, the opportunity to grasp the trump card. I'm just taking advantage of the language. I'm sorry, I can't help that. The abolition of privileges, in other words. The very essence of the aristocracy of the Goys, which was the only protection of peoples and countries against us. I'm sorry, I couldn't help that one. The privileges of the nobility were sometimes abused, there's no doubt. However, the privileges of the nobility allowed them to defend their respective nations or principalities against the Jew. So the Jew had to destroy the means of defense in order to subvert the nations. The breakdown of the privileges for which the Jews exploited the lower classes often meant the transfer of real property from the noble families to the hands of the usurers, and paved the way for the establishment of capitalism and speculation, removing the control of the land and its resources from the rulers of the people, who were responsible to guard the people. The Jews themselves inform us of the result as the protocols proceed, and they say, on the ruins of natural and hereditary aristocracy, we built an aristocracy of our intellectual class, the money aristocracy. We have established this new aristocracy on a qualification of wealth which is dependent upon us and also upon science, which is promoted by our wise men. And there you have it. Liberalism was all about replacing the European nobility with the Jewish nobility. And today it's written all over the faces of the noble people of Europe. Especially in Britain. And this science began as the promotion of the Kabbalah among the scholars of Europe. Beginning with Johann, Johann Reuschlin and John Dee. This is one reason why we spent so much time with the accounts of Reuschlin and Dee earlier this year, so that we could understand both the validity and the implications of statements such as this found in the Protocols. The Jews came to control science through the fascination of non-Jews with the Kabbalah. Today it is safe to assert that much theoretical so-called science has its origins in the Kabbalah and in ancient paganism, which has been expressed in modern technical terms. This is certainly true of the theory of the beginnings of life, or evolution, and it is true of the so-called Big Bang Theory, which is little but Kabbalistic nonsense. One function of Jewish science is to maintain the power and presumed moral authority of Jewish money. The two work together to create a new religion in which the Jew can have moral legitimacy and can further spread his false mantras of liberty, equality, and fraternity, the three unclean spirits of the Jewish world order. It is not a mistake that the Roman Church, the mainstream Judaized denominations, all governments, all corporations, and all educational institutions preach these mantras without ever questioning them and unanimously condemn all of those who would question them.
Where the protocols continue, the Jews admit that they have already won control of the world based on these false mantras. Our triumph was, past tense, they used it a couple of paragraphs ago as well, our triumph was also made easier because, through our connections with the people who were indispensable to us, we always played upon the most sensitive chords of the human mind, namely, greed and the insatiable selfish desires of man. Each of these human weaknesses, taken separately, is capable of killing initiative and of placing the will of the people at the disposal of the buyer of their activities. Abstract liberty offered the opportunity for convincing the masses that government is nothing but the manager representing the owner of a of the country, namely the people, and that this manager can be discarded like a pair of worn-out gloves. The fact that the representatives of the nation can be deposed delivers them into our power and practically places their appointment in our hands. There is no better example of this Jewish boast than what happened to the family of Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, only twelve years after Sergei Nihilus first published his warnings in a text of the Protocols in Russian. Following that, the Jews indeed took over the entire Russian government and appointed its rulers ever since, and I mean ever since now. You think that Putin's the, the in control in Russia. I'm sorry, Putin's not in control of Russia. In fact, when the Soviet Union was supposedly dissolved, the Jews ended up owning all of Russia. It didn't belong to the people at all. And that too is a Jewish lie. The nation doesn't belong to the people. It belongs to either the nobility or the Jews. And that was why liberalism turned the world over to the hand of the Jews. Even though Bolshevism was Jewish, even though the entire Soviet system was Jewish, when it was dissolved, the Jews still walked away with, the, with, with all of the property in the country, all of its natural resources, all of its big industries, and they still own them to this very day. Putin may have deposed one oligarch, because he didn't like them, they had a disagreement. He couldn't have done that without all of the other oligarchs behind him. And we cannot imagine that this is not also true throughout the West. Indeed, it is true. The Jews who control the wealth of every Western nation have chosen the governors of those nations, even under the guise of democracy, and there are... No exceptions. The Apostle Peter spoke of the liberty offered by the Jews, where he said in his second epistle, that while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. So long as any president accepts the Jewish concepts of liberty, equality, and fraternity, we as a nation will remain in bondage because that president has also accepted Jewish hegemony. That same is true of every white nation. We cannot heal the cancer infesting the West with votes or with any other elixir. The entire beast must be torn down and destroyed so that the path is cleared for the kingdom of heaven. We hope to elaborate on that more in the future. 
but we have been speaking about it for too many years here already. The only solution is the final solution. The sooner all whites accept that, the better off we shall all be. This concludes our presentation of protocol number one, the basic doctrine, which I never expected would take eight or nine weeks. I think it's maybe nine weeks. We will continue our series on next week with the second of the protocols. I don't imagine that the balance of the protocols will take quite as long. A lot of them are rather short. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.